What does it take to succeed in the often cutthroat comedy club business in the most competitive business environment in the world, New York City? And how did one club owner not only succeed without being cutthroat and with three successful clubs spanning more than 30 years? Buckle on up as you are about to find out from that man himself. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on today's program swam with the sharks of New York City without being eaten alive. <laughs> His first success New York Comedy Club featured unknown comics who later on became household names in the world of comedy. He then went on to own the Broadway Comedy Club, which has still been running for over a decade. This man has worked with everyone you can think of in the comedy club business, from Jim Gaffigan to all the great names like Alan King, etc., etc. This man has just written a book, which we're going to get him to talk about on today's program. I want to welcome to the Motivation Show, Al Martin. Hey, thank you very much, Eli. Great to be here. Great to have you, Al. Now, you and I go back a little bit. We go back as far as your uh, comedy club business. We go back about yeah. 30 years. About Just about 30 years, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and we're, you came by, and uh, we talked business, and on and off for 30 years, we've talked business. And you can still stomach me, right? Yes. That's pretty yes. good. So what's the secret of us uh, being in the contact here for 30 years? Well, uh, our thing was mostly marketing. You know, before there was something called the Internet, there was hard copies of things that you had to advertise in. And in the early days, it was things like the Village Voice and City Guide magazine. And uh, that's where most of our advertising came from. Yeah, so um, let me ask you a question, Al. Did you ever want to quit the comedy club business? And actually, what kept you going? You know, the first real test of wanting to quit the comedy club business is when I had to deal with New York City community boards and application. Bureaucracy. Oh, my God. Why yes. would that stop somebody? Yes. You know, they are very tiring and... I had a neighbor across the street from me on 24th Street where the New York Comedy Club was. That was the neighbor from hell. And she was constantly calling the community board. And there's sometimes not anything near due process in a community. I once had at the liquor license renewal, anytime you um, renew your liquor license, you have to go in front of the community board. And generally, it they have input, but they can't block the license. It's ultimately up to the state liquor authority. But you have to go every two years in front of them. After six years, I stopped. And for the, the last 
the last 10 times I had to go in front of the uh, um, community board, I didn't even show up because it would be 20, 30 people from the neighborhood and the entire board yelling at me, you know, because there were six people outside smoking a cigarette at two o'clock in the morning, you know, and they were making a lot of noise. <laughs> so that was the big frustration. And then the second time I thought about quitting was actually during COVID, you know, being arbitrarily told to close for, uh, I don't know how long I'm going to be closed. They haven't given me any idea yet. Well, that's not a bad track record, Al, for 30 years, only having yeah. really two major things. Uh, let's face it, uh, COVID-19 uh, stopped a lot of people in, in their yeah. tracks. So, Yeah, it's frightening. I mean, I'm reading every day of another major business just not surviving through it. And that's uh, very sad. And, you know, I don't think, uh, Eli, that uh, the whole story has come out or uh, is – done with COVID in terms of the collateral damage of businesses. Um, I'm shocked every day when I watch the stock market just keep going up, up, and up. Isn't that amazing, Al? Right? It, I don't know. I think it's a Ponzi scheme, actually, because I just see, I see a lot more of what they call the U-shape than what's going to be the V-shape. But, you know, in terms of the recovery of the economy, it could be a little longer than they're thinking. Well, you know how they say in every uh, cloud there's a silver lining. Uh, you know, in every adversity is opportunity. Do you see any opportunity? Do you see any advantages uh, since COVID nineteen has hit? Well, in, in terms of my business, Eli, and and actually any business, if I was a younger man, you know, if I was in my forties, there's probably going to be some unbelievable opportunities, real estate wise, because. There are so many businesses that are in the process of handing back their keys. I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe 30% of the restaurants might not reopen in New York. Uh, and I hope you're wrong, Al. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, yes, that's true. And it better not be my favorite Indian joint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it, it really goes up the chain because once all these people are going out of business, you know, these properties have to be rented. So, you know, as an old saying, cash is king, yep. you know, and my problem is I'm just too old to, I think, you know, I'm like going to be 62. Do I really want to go through that aforementioned community board to get a new liquor license somewhere and deal with a, the contractors and the permitting process in the city of New York to get a permit and, and, and build it out and deal with the fire department, the health department? I'm tired. I've had a lifetime of that. Yep. So what I want to know, Al, New York City would strike me as perhaps the most difficult place on the planet to run a successful comedy club. Why? Because everybody else and their mother has run a, a, a comedy club in New York City. Some su yes. successful, maybe some not so much. But there were some very famous clubs in New York City. I remember being on First Avenue on the Upper East Side, uh, and there was a place called Catch a Rising Star. I remember seeing a young and upcoming comic by the name of George Wallace 
there. Uh, this is going oh, back yeah. in the 1970s. This is a long time ago. And then I remember on West 44th Street, uh, there was the Improv run by Silver Sanders uh, Friedman. And her husband right. ran, of course, out of the West Coast. And they had a television show. And then there was the Laugh Factory that uh, was successful in uh, Los Angeles, but not so successful. Uh, right on the corner of the, of the uh, universe, 42nd and 8th. So all eventually folded in New York City. Uh, while Al Martin keeps rocking more than a porch full of geriatrics, bada bang. Now you know why I'm not on a stage. So yes. tell me, what, what have you done that perhaps the others didn't figure out? Well, the clubs you mentioned, uh, specifically the Improv and Catch a Rising Star, they started in an era where there was no stand-up comedy clubs in New York. They were pretty much the beginners. Them, Dangerfields, uh, the comic strip came along. So in the beginning, there were only four or five comedy clubs to service seven, eight million customers. So they became very um, comfortable in the way that they did business. And when the competition started to increase, and a lot more clubs started coming down the pipeline. Caroline's, uh, Carrie Hoffman at the time would stand up New York, um, and myself and Barry Katz in the village with Boston Comedy Club. Now that suddenly it doubled. The amount of comedy clubs in New York doubled. And the population didn't double, so somebody was going to get cannibalized, I think, unless you created new markets. And having had a marketing background in college, I tapped in, and we talk about it in the book, uh, we, we, we tapped into new markets, different markets. Um, we created the first African-American comedy show in New York. We created the first Latino. You were way ahead of your time doing that, right? You could, considering right. the current circumstances in, in the country, right? Yeah, yeah. Kudos and, and to what, you. What was weird is I went to the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is the big festival just for laughs, for comedy, and they had a symposium on, on uh, the state of comedy in New York, and a question was brought up to the panel uh, by another club owner, uh, and he's asked, uh, um, there's a small little club in my city that's now doing African-American comedy shows. What do you think of that? And they all poo-pooed it at the time. They all scoffed at it. They said, oh, you know, comedy is homogenous. It's, it can't be really niche marketed to any group. And now, fast forward 30 years later, uh, I don't think there's a major comedy club in the country that's not doing chocolate Sundays. you know? I mean, uh, stand-up shows. So it's like they all copied the idea. And we, we got very big into the new talent business. and. We just did things a little differently, and these other clubs, you know, they were just used to opening their doors when there were only four comedy clubs. Open the door. Yeah, yeah. So, so Al, you know, when I think of comedy clubs, sometimes, uh, and maybe erroneously, so I just think of an acerbic sort of owner, you know, who's, who's really <laughs> gritty. And I, and I saw a documentary recently about a lady who runs the famous comedy club in, in the, in, on the other coast uh, yes. in California. Um, and, you know, she, she was a little gritty. Uh, oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So uh, somehow you stomached me for the past 30 years. Uh, and you've always been a nice guy to me. I, I wonder, 
Tell me a little bit about interpersonal relationships and how important that is in the in business in general and in the comedy business. So tell us a little about how you work with your employees and then tell us about those uh, comics who, you know, in, in the old days got 10 bucks, maybe 15 bucks, you know, ahead just to get on stage and practically begged you to get on stage. How did you, you know, help them to maintain their dignity and not be a, a, a mean old grouch? Well, you know, I think there were two eras of Al Martin. In the early days, Eli, I, I was a grouch. <laughs> I wasn't easy. Uh, and I think it had to do with a lot of things, uh, my own personal issues in life. And, you know, sometimes I wasn't the nicest guy in the world. And, you know, I had to come up the rough way. And I then expected all the comics to pay their dues. And, you know, I might have you know, not always explain myself properly and a little acerbic. Yeah. But so, Al, what I wanted to find out, um, I, I want to get back into your early days before you actually opened up these comedy clubs. And I want to help to uh, inspire those people who are listening today because you've got an incredibly uh, inspiring story. I mean, you grew up, you were a bullied fat kid, you had no connections, you had no money. Tell us about that. How well, did you progress from there? <laughs> you know, I always think of that saying from the movie Rocky. Uh, it's not how many times you get punched in the mm -hmm. face. It's something along the lines of how many times you get punched yeah. in the face and get back up. And get off the canvas, yeah. Get off the canvas, and that's what happened to me. I went through from my early 20s to when I opened up the comedy club, I went through around 12, 10, 12 really tough years where I got battered around. I, I worked for a company that uh, laid me off because I didn't get along with one of the, it was a family business. I didn't get along with one of the family members. Then I started my own business that got legislated out of office. You might not know, but I used to do lie detector tests in another life. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I built one of the largest polygraph companies. I take the fifth. Yeah, and it was one of the largest ones in the country. And that got knocked out of the box by uh, some poly uh, anti-polygraph legislation. I had to close. I had one year to close my doors, and then, and, and then, uh, that's how I kind of eventually stumbled into comedy. Because one of my golden rules is, you can best succeed at something the lighter that you travel. If you're a mm. person, you got a wife, you got three mm. kids, yep. you might need to keep that steady job. You might need to stay on a job you hate because you have to provide. But at that time in my life, I had nothing going on for me. So, you know, the opportunity came up to do a little stand-up comedy. That, that's what happened. I ran with it. I became a, a comic on a dare. And um, that's, that's how it all started for me. So, Al, you know, they say the number one fear, uh, greater than death, is public speaking. Now, 99% of people would probably never get up in front of a live audience uh, and tell jokes and put themselves in the position to like potentially really bomb. Um, and so I'm trying to understand um, how does a comic have that kind of guts, overcome their fear, get up on a stage and do what almost nobody else would dare to do? What's the secret? This, the secret is overwhelming narcissism. 
you know, most comics are socially inept people. They don't have the ability to communicate well um, in their private lives. And so when they get up on the stage, it's a magical place for them that they could be anything and anybody they want that they create. And it's their voice finally coming out, the voice that they couldn't have in school or in, or, or in social situations with friends. So they suddenly get like Mike courage and are able to get up there and express themselves. But what about the, uh, the Jim Carrey's and the Robin Williams who look like they were born <laughs> a comedian, literally born? The, you know, it's a very funny thing. And the true talent of a Robin Williams and a Jim Carrey is they're up there making it look like they just thought about it on the spur of the moment. But both of those guys perform stand-up comedy nightly honing the material that you saw but made it look like it was, you know, improv or on the spot. And that's their genius. That was their real genius that they were able to do it that way. Did they have any fear in your no. opinion? No. Listen, we all have a little, you know, the, there was an old saying, Johnny Carson did The Tonight Show for what, 25 or so, 30 years? I mean, he was there forever. But they said that every night before he went up on stage to do the monologue, he would throw up violently. Is that so? Wow. Yeah. That I so, did not know. Hmm. Yeah. And so the fear is always there. But for a good comedian, that, you know, you have more fear before the set than once you go up there. Because once you go up there and you get that first laugh on stage, you're off to the races. Al, when I had the seminar center back in the old days, uh, and I ran that, I flew in a lady from California uh, by name of Dr. Susan Jeffers. And she wrote a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Now, I never really read the book, but I always internalized the title, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Tell me what you think of when you hear that title as it, it relates means- to comedy no matter how crazy it sounds, no matter how nervous you are about the idea, run with it anyway. Do it. Do it. Especially if you're not... What's the worst that can happen, right? What's the worst that can happen to you, right? Right. I mean, you know, especially like I said, you know, the the people that have it the toughest in in stand-up comedy you like are those that come to me. And I've had many of them through the years. I've had successful business owners, successful um, uh, lawyers, surgeons, politicians uh, who have said to me, I want to become a stand-up comic. It's been a lifelong dream. The problem is to become a really good stand-up comic, you have to be totally dedicated. You have to breathe it, live it, go five, six, seven, eight times a week to perform and, and do it, even if it's open mics. Now, some of these people are so successful in their day jobs, they don't have that kind of time to do that. You know, and that's, that's the problem that those kind of people have. Al, there's one thing still bothering me, and that is, what if you bomb, right? For some people, bombing is, is worse than death. How do you handle that? How do you handle the fear, I, I'm going to bomb, and, and it's going to live with me forever? Well. You're a base. You're a. You're the. 
the, the best ball player in the world might only bat 325 in a season. And that means 35 million a year. <laughs> yeah. And, and two thirds, that means that he, he gets a hit one third out of every three times he goes up. So 67% of the time he's failing. You just have to have that ability. You're an NFL receiver. You might get 50 passes thrown at you and only catch 25. So the thing is, you have to be very um, uh, connected and just get up and do it again. It all comes back to that Rocky saying, you know, just dust yourself off and keep on doing it if you believe in yourself. So, Al, middle of March, COVID-19 hits. Your business is shut down. My business is shut down. The entire hospitality industry in New York City is shut down. And apparently you decide to use that time in a positive way. Uh, you got around to something that was been in your mind for a very, very long time, your new book. So you put out a new book and it's called, I Did It on a Dare, How I Created a Comedy Empire in 30 Short Years. What inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I, I just had so many years of various people that I've run into in comedy. And, you know, Eli, you can go to any party and there's lawyers and doctors and judges and they always want to, the people at the party always want to talk to me because it's such an unusual and different field than anything else people do. And the people I've met and run into through the years, I could have never dreamed I would have done that in any other profession. So, Al, what was the implied dare that got you started in this business as it relates to when the title in the book? I was, I was dating a girl who was an open mic comedian, and uh, she dragged me to watch her do stand-up comedy one night at Pip's Comedy Club in Brooklyn. I remember that, yeah. Remember that place? Yeah. It was, I think one of the first comedy clubs yeah. ever. And she asked me uh, after her set, like women are apt to do, how did I do? How did I do? How did I do? I answered the question 50 times and it still wasn't enough. How did I do? How did you really, are you kidding around? Finally, I got so fed up. I turned around and said that you were absolutely horrendous. Okay. I couldn't stand it. Now leave me alone. That led to a 10 minute fight where she turned around to me and said, if you think you're funny and you think you can do it, why don't you get on a stage? She dared me to get on a stage. And I love challenges. And I said, you know what? If you, if you can get up on a stage, I can do it. With false bravado, I guess. But I went up and did it and bombed horribly the first time. But somehow I got up and did it a second and a third and eventually ran with it. So, Al... Tell me, is it better to have failed, but have, you know, to have tried? You know that saying, it's better to have tried and failed and never to have tried at all. Do you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I agree with it because you will go your entire life uh, wondering. I think nothing is worse than, you know, being a 75-year-old person sitting in a room and saying, I should have done that 50 years ago. I should have tried it. You know, okay, if you tried it and failed, at least you tried it. There, there are things I've done in my life. I thought I, thought I was going to be a harness race driver at one time in my life. I actually spent, a, when I graduated out of college, I spent a winter 
in Saratoga Springs at a small little harness racing track, learning how to become a, a trainer. You know, I started as a groom, and my goal was to become a trainer driver. And after spending the entire winter freezing my ass off, getting up every day at four o'clock in the morning, I said to myself, you know what? Uh, I think I'm going to go register for college in, 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 the, in the fall. But at least I tried it, Eli. And, and I felt like I got it out of my system. You know, for me, anybody that tries something, I don't care what the results are, you know, I admire them, you know, to be able to get out there and put yourself on the line. All winners at the end of the day have to put themselves on the line, whether you're an actor, whether you're a comedian, uh, anything that you're doing, if you're afraid to step forward, if you're afraid to fail, you'll just never succeed. And yeah. so what I've done in my life is I, I've tried to change the definition of what failure really is. You know, failure is just one step closer to success. You know, without that stepping stone, you just can't get there. Does that make that sense? Is so tr that is so yeah. true. And ask most successful business people, have you ever failed in any business ventures? And they'll tell you, sure. You know, you know, I don't want to get too political, but look at the president, right? A lot of people say, you know, oh, he's failed at a steak business and a university, and he's had five or six failures. Oh, and Atlantic City was a disaster. But the, que the real question is, how many successes have there been? Right. How many, you know, before he became president and became controversial, this man single-handedly changed the landscape of real estate in New York. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, Wayne Gretzky says you miss 100% of the shots you never take. So right. if, if you're not shooting, you're not winning. That's the, that's the principle at the end of the day. Right. And, you know, that's the thing. When you take the shots, you're not going to hit them all. There's no way. Like we said before with a baseball, the best only hit 300. Yeah, that's true. Now, I, I know you hate to get into this topic of your book, but let's get back into this, <laughs> this incredible book that you wrote, and let, let's get a little juicy here. Tell me uh, a Sarah Silverman story. Well, you know, uh, it was in, I think, 2014 or 15, Sarah Silverman uh, went on a national interview and called me out saying that I was a prime example of the wage gap. Uh, that I paid her less for a set at the New York Comedy Club than I paid another comedian who was a friend of hers and a male comedian named Todd Barry. Now, what she failed to mention that night, and I countered with a video that went viral with over, two, over a quarter of a million views. Wow. Yeah, was that, uh, she came into my club that night with Todd Barry. Todd Barry was scheduled to do a spot. Therefore, he gets a full paid spot. She saw the crowd, how electric it was, and she said, Al, can I do a guest spot? A guest spot. He said to her, no problem. Go right on up. She comes up afterwards. She walks. I, I felt really excited that she did the set. She was just on SNL, Saturday Night Live. I wanted to get her back at the club. So I gave her some cab fare as a token. It, it's, it's not expected to do that on a guest spot. I've had many great comedians come in for guest spots through the years. I never was expected to pay them anything, you know. On some level, it can be even considered a quasi-insult, uh, you know. 
You know, here's a multimillionaire coming in to do a guest fund and giving him $10 or something, you know. But I gave her uh, $10 for cab fare. She went outside, started talking to Todd Barry. She, the way the story went from the third witness that saw it is she said, Todd, great, great crowd. Uh, but how much did you get paid for that? And Todd said 60, uh, 50 or $60. And she turned around and said, what? I only got 10 So she came running back into the club yelling at me. And, and I said to her, Sarah, it was a guest spot, not a full paid spot. If you asked me to do a full paid spot, I would have said, no, I've got a budgeted show here. I'm not going to go over budget. So she held that grudge in for 15 years till she did that salon interview. And then the thing went, blew up. And I got interviewed by maybe 10 or 12 outlets. And then one afternoon, Good Morning America came in. And they interviewed me because the story was super hot. And they must have called her up. She was getting clobbered. I mean, it was overwhelming support for me overwhelmingly on Reddit. I mean, it was crazy. And um, they must have called her for her opinion, and they must have freaked because they said, oh, my God, this thing now is going to be on Good Morning America, national TV. The next morning, she issued a public apology uh, and apologized, and so it was all big misunderstanding. And Ain't that sweet, Al. Ain't that sweet. <laughs> Drag my name in the mud, and it was a little misunderstanding. Well, you know, I'm glad to see that all turned out in, a, in a, such a positive way. And uh, as they say in show business, you know, uh, there, there's, there's no bad uh, publicity. <laughs> hey, afterwards, it all turns out good, right? <laughs> yeah, I said, you want to do a radio show about the story? Yeah. I'll be glad to. She wanted no part of it. Well, I can tell you one thing, Al. Uh, one thing I won't be doing is daring you to jump off the Empire State Building, you know, based on that story that you told. <laughs> you, you go on those dares. So our guest in today's program has been Al Martin, and he has written this incredible book, I did it on a dare, how I created a comedy empire in 30 years. Thank you so much, Al. I hope that our listeners go out and buy that book because there's a whole lot of other stories that we haven't gotten into today that are real kind of juicy. Oh, yeah. It's, it's chock full of it. Great, Thanks, Al. great stories. Thanks, Eli. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>